Welcome to the Business of Innovation podcast, featuring in-depth stories from innovators within leading local and global organizations, brought to you by the Pfeiffer Innovation Hub at the Clemson University MBA. Aaron, I want to welcome you today to the Clemson MBA Business of uh, Innovation podcast. It's good to be here. And, you know, I am really excited to talk with you about your career because as I've looked back through the different positions that you've held, um, it's interesting to me, you've had a pretty amazing uh, journey uh, as far as your your work. So, um, first of all, let me just ask you um, one question I like to ask all my guests is, um, where were you born and what was your birth order? So I was born in Goshen, Indiana. Now that is about an hour and a half east of Chicago. So northern Indiana, right on the Michigan-Indiana line. So it's small, small little town called Goshen. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am the first of four. So I'm the okay. oldest. Okay. So, and that was back in 1979. So I've got a few gray hairs, Gail, are starting to come yeah. in. <laughs> You're pretty, pretty young there. Okay. So tell me a little bit about... Um, your current role. It, it appears to me that there's a little bit of a thread that in everything you've done, you've led organizations in their really production of revenue and sales. Is that kind of what I'm seeing? Yeah. So I think everybody in their life, you know, has a break in your career. Um, for me, it was when I was 20 years old. And as a 20 year old, I was given an opportunity to lead an inside sales team at a call center here in Greenville. Mm-hmm. And that really changed the whole trajectory of my career. Because in college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I was a marketing major, had no clue that I was even good at sales. But when you have at 20 years old an opportunity to lead people mm-hmm. and people that are older than you and you're managing them, um, I found out that I was really good at it because I cared about people. Mm-hmm. But I also found that I had a knack for always trying something new. So it was just always burning within me, like there's a better way to do this. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted, I just, I just, I just had a knack for it. I found out I was good at it, you know, and, and looking for ways to improve things. And as a result of that type of thinking, I was able to produce, you know, top, top quality sales teams that mm-hmm. were, you know, achieving their numbers. I was competitive. And, uh, and so after four or five years of doing that, I went into a banking for a little while and found out that, that wasn't really my calling, mm-hmm. uh, but then got into the software business and, um, I found that over the last 15, 16 years in the software business that that is being given a leadership role. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been part of my leadership track is challenging the status quo mm-hmm. and providing alternatives to that. Uh, because I think the companies that, that feel to do that end up dying at some point or, or mm-hmm. severely regressing. So I kind of always branded myself as an innovator, mm-hmm. um, as a change agent. You hear those words a lot um, where I come in and I'm assessing the business and I'm looking for new and better ways to do things that, in some cases, can dramatically impact the bottom line. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's I've been blessed to, to be a part of those types of roles. And now I manage a team up in the Northeast um, of 11 states for Walters Kluwer. And we provide accounting software for mm-hmm. CPA firms. And uh, so I'm always, now that I've been in this role for nearly a year, looking for ways to say, hey, how do we do things different? How do we do things better and innovate? And we've been able to come up with a lot of different things over the last 12 months uh, that are impacting and increasing sure. revenue. So the last 12 months have been probably pretty challenging, but a good yeah. opportunity to find some new ways to approach um, your customer and, and make those sales? Yeah, I, I find that I fail more than I succeed. 
as an innovator. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that any good innovator finds that to be true or any good entrepreneur. And uh, I've just learned to be resilient. I think it's one of the other qualities that uh, God's given me that's, um, you know, essential in this type of, of a role in this type of thinking. Mm-hmm. I, I probably will try 50 things and they all go wrong, but I find one or two things that are home runs. And those are the things that we're looking for. We're looking for those one or two ideas that change things. I think that I'm just not afraid to fail. And I think that's what holds a lot of people back sometimes is um, that, that afraid, that conservativeness that, you know, I'd rather play it safe. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain individuals that are just built for that way. And we need those stability, you know, individuals. Uh, but for me, I'm that risk taker that's willing to kind of say, hey, let's try this. And if it goes wrong, I have to own it. And sometimes it's ugly. But man, when things go really well, it's it's yeah. really good for the organization. Give me a big, an example of something you've done in the last, you know, 12 to 24 months that might have been a little bit different or a little bit radical and and maybe turned out well. And it sounds like you have a, a group of individuals that you're mm-hmm. leading and you're obviously trying to create a culture of all of those individuals looking for better ways to do things. Yeah. Is there an example you could share? I have a great example actually back in 2014 that I think is really relevant to this uh-huh. topic. Um, I was the chief revenue officer for a company called PayPro uh, out of Atlanta, Georgia, and a great company, really loved the owners, uh, had a great experience there. And um, in 2014, we were, you know, we really needed to, to change mm-hmm. our current sales model of direct selling to the market, uh, to the end users was not effective. We weren't really achieving our revenue objectives. We needed to make a change. And so I came up with after kind of whiteboarding and putting my ideas up on a board one day with uh, one of our owners, Mike Steele, like, Mike, you know, I, I think I've got it. Let, let's focus on a channel innovation. Mm-hmm. So let's go out and align ourselves with insurance agencies. We were selling payroll software directly sure, to the end user. Sure. Right. So it's a direct sales model. We wanted to add a layer in between there. We wanted to kind of do a wholesale sales model where we have a channel partner that refers us business mm-hmm. and gives us their clients. So instead of us calling direct, it's a warm handoff oh, yeah. from a channel partner. And then, you know, our, cha- our, our closing sales, instead of closing at 10 or 20%, and we're closing at 50, 60, 70%. That's incredible. Because we have people that are referring us their clients and we're mm-hmm. compensating them with a revenue share. So mm-hmm. that was another innovation that we made with that. And he was a little concerned, like, okay, um, how are we going to go about doing that? And I basically said, let me just, you know, drive in Georgia for mm-hmm. three or four days a week and let me go out and recruit insurance agencies. That mm-hmm. was the channel that we chose, mm-hmm. commercial and health insurance agencies where mm-hmm. we don't provide any threat to them. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it, there, that's a channel that um, health, or our competition can't really go after because our competition and ADP or a paychecks, they already have their own insurance agencies. Mm-hmm. So they can't really go after insurance agents. So I felt like we had a channel monopoly, if you will. Brilliant. And it was an opportunity for us. And mm-hmm. I felt like as soon as it, somebody else figured it out, we might have two years to maturity of that mm-hmm. innovation. So I, I told Mike, I said, this doesn't work. Like, mm-hmm. you can let me go. I mean, you can, you can fire me for all I care because I think I have to take a big risk here because we're really stuck in the clay. Yeah. He's like, go for it. You know, we trust you. We'll give you the resources. Mm-hmm. Tell us what you need to be successful. And they were very supportive. And what we found in 90 days is that we landed contracts with you know, 14 or 15 insurance agencies. Mm-hmm. And within four months, um, we landed two or three really nice sales that were all referred to us. Yeah. So the innovation is this. This is how it was scaled. Within the next five years, you know, we grew into five different states and we had a total of 500 agencies. So we started with zero. Mm-hmm. We went to 500 agencies. And they each had on average about three salespeople that mm-hmm. were referring to us. So 1,500, 1099 referral sources. Mm-hmm. 
in the scope of five years that all started in a conference room on a whiteboard, tripled the size of our company. How did you get the idea? How did it come to you? You know, I was really, you know, there's a book out there called The Ten Types of Innovation. If you start there, start there, right? Yeah. If you're an innovator, you, you want to look at resources that challenge your mind. Mm-hmm. And when I, when, I, when I looked at that book and you've got all kinds of different types of innovation, and that, that's what got my juices thinking as far as, you know, a distribution innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, how can I, you know, distribute? How, our distribution model to me is a, in sales is really a big thing. And what, what we found in sales over the years is that companies that continue to go direct to market, you can still do that um, somewhat effectively, but we're finding that people are really resistant to cold calling and emails mm-hmm. and phone. Yeah. So you have to really pivot and find another way to tap into the market. So how can we get to the market in a different way? That book with those types of innovations started me on the journey mm-hmm. where I started saying, okay, how do I do a distribution type innovation? How do we do a, a compensation innovation? Mm-hmm. Or you know, how do we pay those people? Let, let's get creative with our compensation model. Yeah. And so we came up with that. Um, how do we uh, keep the competition out of what we're doing? Oh, that kind of fits into this model, right? So, so the barriers to entry mm-hmm. were really heavy. So, you know, most of our competitors aren't going to want, or uh, some of our competitors that, um, that didn't uh, have insurance agencies, they didn't really want to spend the money, you know, and, and pay revenue shares. And we did. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it cut into our margins a little bit, but it was worth it because we got Dang. more referral volume. Eventually what happened is, is our competition picked up on it and, um, you know, we were battling other, you know, other people for our partners, but by then they were under contract. Mm -hmm. So we really seized the market. So I always tell, you know, innovators all the time, you have a choice between being an early adopter or a late adopter. Mm -hmm. I always prefer to be on the front end of things. Mm -hmm. If things go bad, yes, it can be ugly for you. But if you, if you really find something that works, you're going to get one or two years of, of prosperity. Yeah. So the partnership that you offered to those um, insurance companies or brokers, I would imagine they were brokerage houses, mm-hmm. then you, it was a win-win. I mean, how could they say, why would they say no? You're bringing in something else yeah. for them to sell. And and mm-hmm. uh, so it, it sounds like a, a wonderful um, innovation. Um, and how gratifying for you to be able to see yeah. the success of that. You know, I, I kind of prototyped it and played with it in a previous role mm-hmm. um, with another company I was with here in Greenville uh, for a few years where I kind of uh, had some channel partners like mm-hmm. that, and uh, they were in Atlanta, and we were developing that model, and I'd gotten something from it. So, mm-hmm. the you know, I, I had done something similar before, mm-hmm. but never really had an organized game plan and, and really developed it out and put everything on the line for that. I yeah. really staked – that was a defining moment in my career. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the staple of my resume to say, you know – I staked everything on it. It paid off. It could have gone very, very wrong. And, mm-hmm. you know, who knows where I would be today, but it paid off. And so, you know, I think taking calculated risks, uh, I don't ever advocate sometimes with innovators and entrepreneurs taking unnecessary risks or haphazard risks. I think, you know, everybody has a different risk tolerance. Do what's best for you. For mm-hmm. me, I take calculated risks where I run numbers, I run scenarios, and I say, do I have a high probability of success? Mm-hmm. It could fail. Yeah. But do I have a better, you know, high probability of success in doing this and something else? Tell me, you, um, how did the Clemson MBA help you grow as an innovator? Because it sounds mm-hmm. like that's a part of your DNA yeah. that's been there. You know, uh, a few years ago, <clears throat> you know, I've been in the workforce now for, at that point, for 20, 22 years. And, you know, I'd already had that innovation under my belt and really mm-hmm. had a passion to continue to do that. And um, I think at this point, it's like, you know, what new tricks can I learn? Um 
you know, as my tenure at PayPro came to a close, mm -hmm. I was really looking to see where my career would go next. And um, an individual that I knew was on the board of the MBA program and suggested that, you know, I'd be a part of that. And after joining the program, you know, it, I think like a lot of MBA students coming in, I was a little nervous. I hadn't been in school in 20 years. Right. And, um, you know, so but getting a taste of the curriculum right out of the gates mm -hmm. and learning about ethics and leadership and it, cha it challenged me. And I was surprised because mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, for, for me, as a lot of people, when you get that work experience, we're feeling pretty good about our skill sets and where we're at. Mm -hmm. What I realized going through the program is I really didn't know as much as I thought I did. And it was a humbling experience for me and necessary for me to go through that. Mm -hmm. um, there were some instructors there that really challenged me to be the best version of myself. Yeah. So going into the program, I had a lot of talent, I had a lot of ability, I had a lot of success. It really wasn't as good as I could be. Mm -hmm. So a lot of rough edges. Um, my thinking and the way I thought was changed through the course and the curriculums, mm -hmm. um, through the various types of negotiation classes that we took and leaderships and ethics courses and you know law courses and all that coming together, operations and finding bottlenecks and processes mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, really challenged my thinking. And when you're out of school for 20 years, going back, sometimes that textbook, Socratic method of teaching, which is what Clemson does that I highly advocate, which is a discussion-based cohort environment mm -hmm. where you hear from other working professionals and you're like, wow, that's actually a really good idea. Yes, yes. And that added more value was the yes. cohort model. Mm -hmm. And so several of my colleagues, I attribute some of my ideas to because they were outside the box and thinking and starting businesses. And I'm like, I like that. Mm -hmm. um, but that's really good. And then, you know, just learning to apply that, you know, for what I did for a living. And it just fit hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I honestly don't know what I would be or where I would be without that two-year stint in the program. Mm -hmm. You know, so... I love that you underscored um, what your cohort brought to the equation mm -hmm. because I do see um, uh, sometimes younger uh, individuals wanting to rush directly into that MBA, and yet you were able to have a lot of success, learn a lot before you came in the door, which gave you, I think, a greater appreciation yeah. of what was being studied and a greater ability to be part of that cohort and contribute as well with your own learning. Right. Um, and I do think there's so much wisdom in the room of those I classes. Agree. I think I, um, I know as working at Clemson, I learn a lot from the people in the room as they share, you know, their goals and aspirations, what they're working on, maybe what hasn't worked. But I, I, I always feel like everyone learns from everyone else. I, I would agree with that. And I think that the Clemson MBA program is very progressive in its thinking and the type of instructors that are, <laughs> are brought in there, certainly yourself and several others. Um, don't just deal in theory. They deal in real-life equation. They deal in, r in real-life situations. Um, kudos to Clemson for being that progressive. Now mm -hmm. a top 30 program, uh, the, one of the most cost-effective MBAs you can find. You know, so if budget's something of a concern, you, you want to go to Clemson to get your MBA. Um, the cohort model to me is, is the icing on the cake. There are a lot of different MBA formats. You know, they mm -hmm. have electives and there's corporate MBAs and there's all kinds of different things and there's some that are all virtual. I found that the in-person dynamic of the cohort really challenges you and you'll get so much more out of it because the instructors aren't lecturers, they're mm -hmm. facilitators, they're moderators. Yes. You find that you're actually teaching each other. Mm -hmm. You have a textbook, you have a core basic curriculum, you do have materials, your instructors bring value to the class, but mm -hmm. you will find that your discussions with your colleagues and then the cohort 
really is what you're paying for. And then furthermore, after you graduate, you've got friend, you know, 24 friends for life yes. that you network <laughs> with and help each other out. So there's a lot of value there as well. I heard a dean say years ago, what you get an MBA, about 80% of it is really that cohort, yeah. you know, that incredible board of people around you that will always be there for you and, and are always available for conversations. And, and uh, so I love that you mentioned that. And mm -hmm. certainly I um, <clears throat> want to learn more about um, even beyond that cohort, what you're doing now and what you're learning now, what's gratifying for you sure. now. Well, you know, first of all, I want to say that it's been a, a privilege and I consider it a privilege to be, you know, on board with Clemson now. Yes. So finishing the program and now being offered a role as an instructor in the program. Awesome. Um, it's it's really humbling to me. Uh, but I can tell you what, I, I love that type of thinking. So let's go back to the innovation. So Clemson offers an innovation and entrepreneurship MBA, which is what I took. But they advocate that with the instructors and the staff. So bringing me on is innovative. It's it's not something that would be normal in the sense mm -hmm. um, that I just graduated and here I am being brought in to teach a course. What I love about that is, is what I bring to the program is the fact that going through the program, I know where some of those holes are, right? Mm -hmm. and, and what we're able to do then is work as a team and plug those holes or adapt or change, mm -hmm. you know, what doesn't play well with the students. You know, being a part of the cohort, you know the things that you like or didn't like. You know, we didn't get enough breaks or yeah. I really wish we'd touch on this topic more or this was really boring. And so as an instructor, I'm able to, with these students say, okay, I've been in that chair. Mm -hmm. I know how this, I think this will play with the students. Mm -hmm. So I maybe need to adapt and pivot. And I think that, I hope that this semester, you know, the students that I've had in the class that I've taught, you know, see that to be true, mm -hmm. where I have adapted actually, where I started out with a mode of, of, of thinking with the class and going through some lecture slides. And then after two weeks, it wasn't playing well and I completely changed course and went a different direction. Uh, so anyway, that, that's kind of been a part, I see this being a part of my future. I love teaching. Mm -hmm. And so being able to give back and to do my best to make the program better and play my part on the team, we have a phenomenal team there. Uh, I learn a lot still from my colleagues and, and you included. So that's a definitely part of what I'm doing now. Tell me about your class. So I teach a, a negotiations class. Negotiations, mm -hmm. being in sales and sales leadership, mm -hmm. it's, it's something I'm very passionate about, um, which is negotiating. And uh, so having a textbook and teaching these students how, giving them real life scenarios. So mm -hmm. we go through, you know, Harvard simulations and really dive into, you know, letting them pair up and negotiate against each other. And that's how you learn, not just a, a textbook and dealing mm -hmm. in, all right, this is how you should do it in theory, but giving them experience negotiating over different things, uh, moderators using um, arbiters, mediators in different uh, scenarios. I think that's provided the most value to them in this particular class. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they seem like they've really developed and come a long way. Um, I've, the feedback that I've gotten is really, really good. Good. And uh, so it's, you know, and I'll perfect it. There's, you know, some things I'll change next semester and, and modify it a little bit more. Um, but the art of negotiation, and it really is an art um, in business today, you don't have to be in sales to really learn how to negotiate. Mm -hmm. Negotiation is a universal thing. It could be when you're going to buying a car, right? So retail, you're on offer up, you're on Craigslist, whatever it is, you're constantly in a negotiation. How do you do that? Um, where do ethics and honesty play into that, right? Are you, um, are you only in it for yourself? Are you in it for a win-win? The types of negotiations, we study those types of things. We train on those types of things. Mm -hmm. Those are things that people have to predetermine, I think, to be the best version of themselves in a negotiation. 
I love that you talk about negotiation and then you bring in the ethics that are involved and being your best version Mm -hmm. in that scenario. So I'm hearing a lot of character um, that's important when you're negotiating. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, you know, uh, I've always said to each his own, you know, we have, there are different types of negotiators. So I don't ever, I'm not really judgmental or critical. Um, I've negotiated, I mean, I probably do it every single day, contract disputes, legal issues. In my current role as a uh, divisional manager for Walters Kluwer, mm-hmm. you know, there's probably not a day I don't negotiate something. It's not just a sales deal, um, but it could be a dispute. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're, you're negotiating a settlement. And so, you know, I, I've been called names. I've been, I've everything in the book. Like there's just different negotiation styles. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some people that are very, what we call distributive and they're very, very much in it for themselves. And they really care about you and what you get out of it. And their mission is to accomplish their goal at all costs. So learning how to deal with those individuals mm-hmm. with a high standard of ethics and, and morals is my approach. Mm-hmm. There are some people that feel like it's okay to be deceptive and lying in negotiation. Okay, that's not for me to judge their style. For me, I find that honesty and transparency and vulnerability provide the best negotiations and really tear down walls, um, even if it's it to my disadvantage. I've always found that even if I lose in a negotiation, I can sleep good at night mm-hmm. if I'm conducting myself with integrity and with character. And if that party on the other side of the table trusts me, even if they know they can take advantage of me. But some of the times, too, the strength that I have, I'm not afraid to walk away. Mm-hmm. So I'm not naive to the point where I'm being taken advantage of. Um, but I'm like, okay, I get what you're doing. I don't think this makes sense for me. So I'm just going to walk away from that yeah. deal. And then all of a sudden, they want to come back to the table. Mm-hmm. So you can still be in corporate America today, an ethical negotiator with a high degree of honesty and be super successful. Mm-hmm. You don't have to sell out and subscribe to, you know, getting what you want at all costs. Again, where that line is, it's different for everybody and their personal beliefs. But for me, I found that to be true for me. How do you find that students are responding to your approach in the classroom? Great question. Um, you know, I, I think you have a lot of different personalities. So, of course, mm-hmm. when I'm in the classroom, I'm always looking, you know, are people checking email while I'm instructing? That means I've, I've lost them or, mm-hmm. you know, they're not engaged. So I'm always looking for student engagement <clears throat> and they all have different personalities. So I try to, you know, have a delivery style that is engaging to their personalities, to mm-hmm. them, um, encouraging participation and so forth. I feel like they're taking to it very, very well. Um, and I feel like uh, as they've gone through the semester, they've all grown in their learning of it. And I do response checks throughout the semester. Hey, guys, tell me what you don't like. And you can be honest, brutally Perfect. honest. Yes. Like if you just don't like something, like tell me. Don't wait for the surveys that come out at mm-hmm. the end of the semester. Like I'd really like to know. Um, and they said, you know, we just really love the simulations. We re- it's competitive. Good. It's fun. Um, we debrief after each and every one. I give them plenty of time to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all surprised at the type of deals that ev- all the different groups make. Mm-hmm. And so, like, oh, how did you get to that deal? And so it challenges their thinking mm-hmm. a little bit. Or, oh, wow, I totally missed that. I, I wasn't as creative enough. I didn't mm-hmm. think outside the box. So that seems to work really well for this course and this class and this negotiations piece. So. It's very much, uh, I'm a facilitator, moderator. Um, we have a textbook that, that's kind of our guide. And, but we use discussion posts where we want the students to interact throughout the week. Sure. And then, of course, I do some quizzes just to you know, ensure compliance with reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, but outside of that, I think that they're doing phenomenal. Uh, they're all scoring well, and um, I couldn't be more pleased in my first semester. Wonderful. Congratulations Thank on you. that first semester. Um, and I love that you mentioned earlier that as a leader, you care about your people and you're willing to always innovate and say, what can we do better? Yeah. And I'm hearing that really showing up in your classroom. 
You know, you're caring about the students. You want them to be engaged. You want them to be getting what they want. But you're also willing to try new things and keep them um, interested, pique their interest. Yeah. So it sounds like your your uh, transition into the classroom is a very natural fit for you. Yeah, thank you. I think um, I have two two gifts. I'm really weak at a lot of things, Gail, in my life. But um, two things that God has given me is the ability to lead and, and administrate and teach. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we speak about leadership, and and I've I've seen some of the other episodes on on the podcast, and been so thrilled with the the focus on leadership and what being a leader is. And to me, you know, leader is a lot of things, but one of the things that it defines for me is I like to make the decisions that nobody else wants to make. Mm-hmm. And so, when you think about leadership, um, there are a lot of times where leaders freeze and they freeze up, and they don't in those critical times they're not decisive and they're not making a decision, even if it's the wrong decision. I want to make a decision. And so I find that that's what it is, getting in the trenches, uh, mm-hmm. building relationships mm-hmm. with my students. But also when we look at my full-time role, I pride myself on that the individuals that I have, I know them very well. I care about their families and their yeah. success. I'm not really worried about what I can get out of it or my paycheck. That all takes care of itself. Mm. To me, it's all about people and business. And that's how I've always marketed myself. When it comes to innovation, it requires people good people, talented people, but you have to show them you care Mm -hmm. and you're not in it for yourself. And I think that that comes across very, very easy. I think that's where a lot of leaders mess up is that they're not authentic. They're not genuine. And people see through you very, very easily. Yes, And they they can see what your your true motivations are. For me, I want them to see that I genuinely care about them and their careers and what they're doing and that I'm not using them as a means to an end to accomplish my innovative objective. And so I think that's really important is that people equation. I hear, too, as you're talking, and I think about my leaders from my past as well, um, so many times I think leadership involves that education Mm -hmm. of your team, you know, educating them on um, and supporting them and and really a lot of what you do in the classroom, you, you're you probably doing. I love that you have a portfolio situation now where you're teaching some, but you're still very involved in your career because I think all of what you're learning still in your business world, you're bringing right into the classroom. So it keeps yeah. you fresh. And um, But I definitely hear uh, the type of leadership that you're uh, describing where, again, making the hard decisions, but people know that you care and people love to know that they're cared about. I think it's huge. And I love that that's part of our, our curriculum. I love that that's what you're bringing to your classroom. I can't help but think about, about, you know, some Michael Porter philosophies where (laughs) you annihilate your competitor. (laughs) And, and, you know, I'm not sure that was the the best thing for maybe all of us to learn. So um, I love that within the MBA program, um, students are walking away with you know, a good sense of how to negotiate and to be equitable mm-hmm. in solutions and, and and fair in their intentions. And that's what I'm hearing that you bring. Yeah. And, I, you know, like I said, I've, I've had several instructors in the program that I felt like care about me and um, care about my success. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we had lunch together and, and I really learned a lot from them. And I felt like they had my interests at heart. And I, I think that that is the foundation of a program like what we teach. It made me want to be a part of the program. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and excited to be here is that type of caring. And even among, you know, my colleagues now is just, you know, that type of sincerity and care. And so, yes, I mean, being in the, in corporate America and having that balance of the classroom, it allows me to stay sharp, mm-hmm. um, obviously bring real life uh, situations into the classroom. So, yeah, absolutely. You touched on something earlier um, about innovation. I want to mm-hmm. go back to, you said, 
I've probably failed way, way more, yeah. uh, which is common for innovators, you yeah. know, the risk taking. Um, tell me about a time that you failed and you had to recover. You know, that's a really good question. There's so many that where do I start, right? <laughs> is that what I just said? You know, I can think of a time um, in the not too distant past where I interviewed for a role and uh, that I really wanted and I didn't get it. And uh, it would have been an opportunity to run a national sales team. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a good experience for me to go through yet again, uh, because I learned a lot going through that experience. Mm -hmm. um, certainly those opportunities, when you don't get them, they keep you humble and they keep you yes. in check. Um, but I learned how to lose more with grace and humility. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's easy sometimes when you don't get that role you interview for or you fail to complain and bellyache and, um, you know, feel sorry for yourself, get down, lose your morale. Mm -hmm. uh, I found that there's times in my career where I've done that. You know, you kind of sulk for a little bit and um, you're not in a good place mentally. And I found that this time around, uh, I was able to see it myself grow in that area mm -hmm. where I was truly genuinely happy for the individual that got the role. Yeah. Uh, I was able to congratulate them and, and really pivot mentally and say, you know, it just wasn't meant to be. It wasn't meant for me to be in that role. Mm -hmm. Or, you know what, I just simply lost to somebody who was better than I am. And I can accept that. <laughs> mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that I'm happy about it. I was disappointed, but I can accept the outcome. And so I think that, that that was, and it made me better. Um, as I interviewed again in the future, I was sharper, I was better. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think I came across as strong and as aggressive. And I learned and got feedback from that interview and found out, you know, what are some of the things that I was missing? And I was able to grow from that experience. So I became a better interviewer. Mm -hmm. um, but I also learned, you know, when things don't go my way, you know, how to lose. Because everybody, when, you, when, you're high, when you're interviewing for a high-level role, and it's an internal role, people watch you how you respond mm -hmm. when you don't get the role. Everybody's sure, watching you. Sure. Are you going to rub dirt on that other person? Are you, you know, what's that going to look like? Are you going to cry foul? Are you going to be cry baby and complain? Mm -hmm. And I found for me that, you know, I knew all the eyeballs were on me and I looked at it as an opportunity to really enhance my reputation um, and actually come out of it with, with something. And, um, and, it, and that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. um, and so responding with class and grace and humility uh, was good. So that, that would be one example that, I, that I've thought of as it relates to my career. That's a great example. And it's also a very inspiring example to everyone because we always face those situations and just um, embracing them for <clears throat> how can we make them um, be beneficial to us? What right. can we learn from them? How can we still shine, you know, and be humbled and have grace about it? Because uh, that only makes us better in the future. So I love that you shared that. I'm wondering what advice you might have for people who want to be more innovative and creative at work. Yeah, I think you, you know, the blueprint is there. And, and it, for me, it started with, you know, acquiring more education. So <clears throat> if you are in a position to do that, let's start there, right? If you're in a position, whether it's financially or personally, and you may not be, um, get some additional education. Obviously, we'd love to have you in the Clemson MBA program, but if that's not suitable for you, mm -hmm. going back to school, getting an MBA from somewhere that's challenging you and your innovative mindset, um, I think that's important, uh, you know, first and foremost. If you don't have the resources and you're not or are not in a position to do that in your life, I think you have to put yourself in a position to innovate. Uh, and so, you know, for a lot of people, you know, there's two types of innovators. You have some that do it within a corporation and you're kind of a corporate innovator and some that like to be entrepreneurs and start their own business. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's either or. Uh, there are some people who leave their corporate jobs and they go start their business that they had a dream on and they just go do it. And there's never really a good time to do it. And you never have enough money to do it. You just go and do it. Mm -hmm. So, but I think um, definitely, you know, um, I like to write things down on a whiteboard. 
And yeah. that's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can't go get additional education, then I just mentioned a book that, that helped me, which was The Ten Types of Innovation. Mm-hmm. Start there. You'd be surprised how no matter where you are in an organization that your ideas would be embraced. It may not go all the way up to the top, mm-hmm. but maybe your ideas change something that your boss is doing. Even It might just affect your team, you know, and it's an innovative new way of doing things. And if you're passionate about that, the best thing to do is just start coming up with ideas. I write my ideas down and then I start to challenge them. And I also engage others around me to, to challenge me in those ideas. Uh, I always try to get, sometimes it is my boss, you know, like I mentioned that example in 2014 where I engaged, you know, the owner of our company to kind of brainstorm and, you know, we kind of went through some things. So, you know, that's kind of where I start, whether it's material like books, getting formal education, or just something as simple as writing your ideas down, being challenged by some colleagues or friends of yours or family, and maybe it's a business idea you want to start. I find that most, Gail, to be most true is most people have a dream of having a business, of of doing something outside of corporate America where they feel Mm -hmm. hamstrung, where they feel tied down, and they want that freedom to be able to do what they want with their business. Um, And I had the privilege of being in a cohort where, you know, 14 or 15 individuals, you know, did start businesses and had Mm -hmm. plans to start businesses. And, you know, seeing how that matriculated and that process of going through that, um, it was highly rewarding uh, once you do that and you get break free of the corporate America uh, safeguards at times. What is the best advice you've ever received? You know, my father gave me a piece of advice when I was 20 years old that I never forgot. And um, it really transcends into every area of my life. And it's people do what they want to do. Now, when we stop and think about that for a second, it it really made things very easy for me um, as far as reading people. Because at the end of the day, we do what we want to do. So if we want something bad enough, we do it. If we want to go to lunch with somebody bad enough, we do it. If we want to return a text message, Mm. to somebody that we care about bad enough, we do it. What I find that is that we don't realize that we send messages to people subliminally uh, as far as how we prioritize them by our lack of response Mm. or lack of energy by not getting back to them. It served me very well in business because I've learned how to read prospects and buyers really, really well because of that principle. And by that, what I mean is when people are highly engaged in what you're doing, they're very responsive. And mm-hmm. if they want something that you have bad enough, they respond to your text messages, they take your phone calls, and you have them engaged. Right. Because that's what they want to do. They want your product. Okay. If they don't want it, what I often find, and it's not a priority to them, then you don't get that, that correspondence. You know, mm-hmm. you, you end up chasing people a little bit. You're not really getting that response. And that's very frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I always use the illustration, and I've used this with people before, when you send somebody a text message, and you don't hear anything back for four or five days, what is your initial response? Well, depending on who that person is, um, it might irritate you a little bit. You might think it it takes you 30 seconds to just reply to a text, right? Like, you know, stop what you're doing. Even within 24 hours, that's like a reasonable time to reply. But sometimes it sends a message that, you know, you really don't care enough to reply. Mm -hmm. And maybe the other person on your side just inadvertently didn't get it. And so you have to have some grace in there. Mm -hmm. But I think that 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 rule of thumb for me, especially in the business world, but even I've noticed it personally, I try, it's changed me and how I respond to people because I want to be responsive. So Mm -hmm. when my students ask a question, I want to respond fast. Sure. You know, because I want to show them that this, I want to do this. Mm -hmm. And and that endears them to me that they're, you know, it's the same thing in business. When somebody sends me an email, and they have a question about something, I'm going to be very responsive. I want to solve problems quickly for them, mm-hmm. get them answers back. 
to show them that I want to do it, that I care about them and their well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't always work that way on the, the reciprocity side. But I think if um, you, you understand that, that, you, that a little help you with people mm-hmm. um, in life in general, that people do what they want to do. Sure. Interesting advice from your dad. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting what stays with us, isn't it? It really is. And there's yeah. so many more, but that's, that's definitely <laughs> one that's impacted my career for sure. Is there a book on you? Is that something you would want to capture for future generations? You know, uh, as far as writing a book? Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've thought about actually, um, you know, did a podcast today with somebody on LinkedIn and mentioned, you know, for me, I would love to write a book one day called Building a Championship Sales Team. I think there's so many parallels between, you know, building winning teams and winning sales teams mm-hmm. and sports. Yeah. And athletics and something I'm very passionate about. I, I just, um, you, know, you know, building championship sales teams as a sales leader uh, comes down a lot to recruiting, mm-hmm. like it does in college football, mm-hmm. and it comes down to developing talent and coaching. And uh, I spent a lot of time doing those two things in my role in corporate America now for Walters Kluwer is recruiting the best talent I can find, those four and five star players, and then developing that talent. You know, and we, we've seen that even with our own Clemson football program that, you know, to be at the top tier, to have championship teams, mm-hmm. you really need a good recruiter and a great coach. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of teams don't need managers. And I think that that's one of the epidemics that we do have today in corporate America is a, a lot of managers that are just managing numbers and performance. Mm-hmm. are not really adding value. Mm-hmm. You know, where are the leaders in our workforces today adding value to their reps, their salespeople or to their employees, mm-hmm. you know, and not just beating them over the head with something, you know, really, really caring about them or saying, hey, let's work, let's walk through that deal together. Or, hey, I'd be happy to be on that call with you and help. How can I help you? Um, what do you think if you did this? Do you think that would help your outcome? You know, challenging them a little bit mentally, you know, helping them with their personal development. Um, hey, where do you want to go in your career? Where, where's five years take you? Yeah. You know, how can I help you get there? Why don't we try this? Um, to me, that's that's really what that that coach, developer, leader um, is. And so I think a book about that at some point may be in order mm-hmm. uh, to just kind of express from experience some of my thoughts and put that down on paper. Um, it interests me. I think that's a great idea. I saw that podcast on your LinkedIn profile. Yes. So it sounded like an interesting topic. And having a background in sales, I was really curious to know what you all had talked about. So I'll yes. definitely go back and take a look at it. But, yeah. you know, sales is important to every organization. So, yeah. It really it. is. And I know that you know, not everybody's a salesperson, Gail, and, and we know that. But, mm-hmm. you know, you'd be surprised um, that, you know, we're always usually selling some something, whether it's to friends or family. Yes. Um, for those that are starting businesses, um, they need to have some some basic level of sales skills mm-hmm. to, to be able to develop their product even if they can't afford to hire salespeople. Um, and so those are things that, you know, we want to develop in the Clemson MBA program, um, those skill sets. And so we have courses in the MBA program that are designed to bring that out. Um, even if it scares you a little bit, um, we promise we'll get you to a good place. I'm so glad that we do. I mean, that definitely needs to be in their arsenal, our, our uh, entrepreneurial students when they graduate. I agree. <clears throat> I apologize for my voice. That's okay. So um, I would like to ask you what you're curious yeah. about now. You've got, you know, you're teaching, you've got your work. Um, you, What are you curious about now? What are you reading or looking at? Yeah, um, it's a really good question. Uh, I think that, you know, to me, um, recently I've been just curious about how do I do better what I'm doing with Clemson and the MBA program? Mm-hmm. You know, how do I continue to develop as an instructor and in, in providing the best content in the negotiation program? And as I go into the summer, I'll reevaluate the spring and, you know, tweak it and make some adjustments for the fall cohort. So I think that's something that I'm looking definitely looking at. 
Um, and then I think that in my professional career, uh, I'm really looking at with my team, you know, ad- additional innovations. I, I just feel like, you know, we're, there's more there to be had. Um, you know, without going into detail, there's just a few areas where I think we're really weak and I've got to find a better mm-hmm. way to improve it and uh, to create more consistency with what we're doing in our performance. And so I've got to, I've got to go back to the drawing board. And um, so professionally, I'm working through a few of those things right now. Um, and, and so I would say those are probably the most immediate things is a couple low hanging fruit opportunities corporately, mm-hmm. and then certainly, you know, continue to improve as an instructor uh, with Clemson as well in the fall. You said, um, earlier, you, you, you made some reference to, um, family, yes. um, and, and, you know, uh, pivots that you've made through the mm-hmm. years. How do you want friends and family to remember you? Yeah, it's, um, it's a very important question to ask. And I would say that, you know, first of, first of all, I definitely am very passionate about my faith, and I'm not afraid to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the number one thing in my life. The second thing is certainly my family. And, uh, you know, I have three beautiful children. I've been married for 16 years. And, you know, I think you, you go through phases in our life. And to me, it's, it's being a devoted father and husband mm-hmm. and being the best one I can possibly be. And along the way, I've learned hard lessons. I've made bad choices. But, you know, um, my wife's been great. It's been a lot of grace and mercy and love. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I've been able to learn from those experiences. To my point earlier, I failed more than I, than I succeed. Um, but anyway, I want to be known as a, you know, uh, first of all, that I was really, uh, really adamant about my faith and, and, and bold in the right way, um, not intrusive or abrasive, not forcing it down anybody's throat. So that's mm-hmm. very, certainly very important to me. But number two, that I had integrity and character as a man yeah. and that people could trust me and um, that I was authentic. And I've seen a lot of change in my life over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say over the last 10 years is where I've really grown the most in my faith and made some changes. And I'm not perfect. I've made a lot of mistakes. Um, and, but at the end of the day, I think that's the thing. Being a good husband, father, a man of faith, and certainly having integrity and character are important mm-hmm. to me. It, it's a full circle moment for me to get a chance to interview you because you did come into our program as a student. And then now you have continued to be successful in um, your work and then you've come back to teach with us in the MBA. So um, I really appreciate getting the chance to interview you and um, see all your progression here. What question should I have asked you, but maybe I didn't? Yeah, I mean, you've asked some really, really good questions. Um, I think a question that is there, what, what happens if, you know, what happens to companies that don't innovate? Sure. Um, you know, I think that's a, a really good question for us to stop and think about. I know we often talk about, especially in the classroom, a company like a Blockbuster, who, you know, for, for those of us that have been around for a while, you know, realize that, you know, they had, they had the monopoly on the market with, with videos and VHS, and they really weren't willing to adapt. You know, in the early 2000s, when Netflix kind of emerged and you know, uh, I guess Blockbuster was going to acquire Netflix and it fell through and it, it didn't really happen for them. And, you know, now all of a sudden Blockbuster is no more. You see case studies like mm-hmm. that, right? But then you see a company like Netflix who does the, you know, the at-home video. And, and then all of a sudden they pivot and they change and they innovate. And now they've got a streaming service. And, and then you see Disney all of a sudden come out with a streaming service and acquire market share. And now you have HBO Max and now you have, you know, Discovery Plus everybody's now doing streaming service, mm-hmm. you know, and that all was born from innovation from, you know, Netflix saying, okay, well, let's put, instead of sending them to your house, why don't we make it available for you online? And so all of that from innovation. And I think that, that companies that fail to do that are really going to struggle in the future. And 
So I've always wanted to be with a company that had that mindset, um, that of being progressive, being innovative, where you know, I have the freedom to have somewhat autonomy to make decisions or to find ways to do things better. And so I think the, that's a question that you know, needs to be asked you know, for all of us out there is, are we in a position to do that? Um, mm -hmm. And are we with a company that is progressive in their thinking? So that would be probably the, the main one that I would say um, that jumps out to me that, to, add, to add to what we were talking mm -hmm. about. And I appreciate that uh, that question, and and I think it um, speaks back to uh, the conversation we had earlier about yeah. the MBA. One of the things that has really excited me about being with the MBA um, during my tenure there has been the fact that um, we've developed different flavors of MBA. You know, different concentrations depending on what our you know the market needed for you know business analytics or entrepreneurship or. Um, uh, others. So mm -hmm. uh, the corporate program now we're, we have a strictly online, we, you know, have responded. So I've really been uh, pleased to see our leadership respond to market and different needs and be innovative, what we hopefully are teaching, but also yeah. actually be that, you know, from almost a, a startup MBA a number of years ago. Uh, so we're excited to be part of that. Point. Yeah, I, I've really, really watched Greg Pickett do that and yeah. and uh, and challenge the current, start something new. You know, yeah. are we going to fall on our face? Maybe not, but it's been exciting to see that first from a front yeah, row it's, seat. It's an excellent point you say that, Gil. And I think that, you know, it, it brings up another question that I think is interesting <laughs> is, you know, what about change? I think sometimes that we all struggle with that at times. Um, some like it more than others, uh, but you know, innovation uh, brings change mm -hmm. oftentimes more than not. And so, you know, for me, I embrace change. I love it, mm -hmm. but that is me, and I might be in the minority when it comes to that. And a lot of people are very uncomfortable with that. They are. And so that that's that's where innovation generally stops. Uh, in a corporation, is you know, it gets stymied by individuals who are really comfortable with the way things are going. Mm -hmm. And I have learned to be comfortable being uncomfortable. I find that that's when I'm in my element, mm -hmm. is when I'm uneasy and I've got to figure something out. And if we don't change this, this thing is going to go in this direction. And I find that when you're in your comfort zone, a lot of times, and you're not willing to adapt and change to mm -hmm. the market, um, that you're, you, know, you or your company, you get stale and you find yourself in a rough situation. And pretty soon you're losing market share. And we could go through just numerous amount of case studies where corporations have done that. Mm -hmm. Where they get really comfortable. Uh, they're not developing new products. Um, I think that's another thing. You know, innovating, making their product sets better, thinking outside the box, coming up with new product sets, you know, to reach the market. Um, and I think that, that that change, sometimes that fear of change is a really yeah. kind of stymies the thing. A well, bit. and I would add to that, I think that happens a lot of times in academia. It just doesn't move yeah, as quickly. Um, so yeah. watching the kind of change and evolution of the MBA program at Clemson mm -hmm. has been very exciting because there has been an ability to embrace change yeah. and to continue moving, you know, down that path without a, you know, an obvious fear, but, but clearly with a, uh, embracing, you know, what, 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 what are the needs out there and how can we respond? So I'm, yes. I'm proud that both of us get to work in yes. that environment since obviously we like the innovative uh, aspect of, of yeah, business. Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny because you see it with students that, you know, they're on, they're growing, and that is uncomfortable mm -hmm. a lot of times, you know, for the students. And I remember being that yeah. that, that place as well, where there was times where I was uncomfortable um, in my chair, thinking, you know what, I've got to figure this out, and um, you know, I don't like being forced to grow mm -hmm. sometimes. And that's a good thing; it was healthy for me. And that's really what the program is designed to do. Yeah, 
And, um, you know, but also, like you say, personal development, you know, what types of books are you reading? Um, I have my class reading, you know, four or five different negotiation books right now that they're going to report on next week. And, you know, and, and to me, that's important, getting different perspectives from different authors, mm-hmm. especially in the business setting, you know, trying to figure out different ways of doing things to get your mind going and stimulated. I think that's where innovation has to start. Yeah. You know, and starting with that piece of paper, that napkin, um, I've seen some great ideas start on a napkin. Mm-hmm. At a coffee shop. Sure. You know, and then it develops and you start thinking through it. It, it could be on the whiteboard. It can be while you're thinking in your car. But mm-hmm. to get those juices flowing a little bit, those innovative juices, mm-hmm. you need to, you know, put information in your mind that will challenge your way of thinking, get you out of the status quo. Yes. To me, the enemy of innovation is the status quo. It's, you know, it's where we don't want to be. Um, it works for a while, but we're constantly trying to find new ways of doing things. So. Uh, that that's my focus, and you know, I think that's what I'm still the most curious about is how I can be a better innovator and mm-hmm. and take it to another level, you know, in my career. Well, thank you so much for the time that you spent with me today, You're and welcome. I'm so glad we were able to capture this. And I'm going to be excited to uh, talk with you more about your class in the future. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. This episode was produced by Nine Eight Central and the Clemson University MBA program sponsored by the Pfeiffer Innovation Hub. Thanks for listening to the Business of Innovation. Hear more stories at www.clemson.edu slash MBA slash podcast.